Well, good morning, everybody. I love mornings like this. This is the hardcore of the church. You guys uh, made some effort to be here, and I um, hope you're richly rewarded. We're going to begin with a quote. Let me pull the house lights up so everybody can see. We're going to begin with a quote that's by a fellow by the name of William Carey. And William Carey said this, to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. What William Carey said, who is the father of modern missions, who was a pastor over in uh, Britain, who sailed to Calcutta, India, having no support from his local churches. What he said was, you need to expect great things from God, and you need to attempt great things for God. He would sail to Calcutta, India, and there he would work in a factory for six years and translate the scriptures into Bengali and Sanskrit language. He was a great man of God. You see, we should be aware of what God will provide for us. I remember my parents talking about investing in land contiguous to Washington, D.C. Back in the 40s and 50s, when they lived in Washington, there was a lot of land nearby, some open fields and some farms. And they said, they used to say, if we had bought land in the 40s and 50s, we'd be wealthy enough to retire. You see, they had the intuition and the foresight. The problem was they didn't have the, they had the foresight, the insight, but they didn't have the money. The problem was they did not have the money. When the God of the universe has put at our disposal his resources, we shouldn't shrink back from doing what seems impossible, from attempting the impossible. All the great people in the Bible had the attitude of attempting something great for God. When David fought against Goliath, you know, on one side of the ring is this 145-year-old, 145-pound teenager, 17 years old, with freckles and red hair. On the other side of the ring is this professional wrestler, fighter, you know, nine foot nine, never lost a match. And David said, let no one lose heart on account of that Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. You see, David was willing to attempt a great thing for God. You see, God had delivered him from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear. And he was fully expecting that God would deliver him from the hand of that Philistine. Think about Abraham, the father of faith. He was told to leave his homeland, to leave his father's house, and go to a land that God would show him. And God was going to bless him. And God was going to bless those who bless him. And God was going to be the father of a nation. You see, he was expecting a great thing from God because he was attempting a great thing for God. Think about the impossible situation of Joshua. There Joshua was at the city of Jericho. Here was a city that had double walls. They were considered impenetrable. You could run two chariots on top of the round, around the walls of Jericho. And yet Joshua and the children of Israel attempted to do a great thing for God. They shouted, and the walls came tumbling down. You want to send this school, right? 
Right. The walls came tumbling down. That's true. You see, Joshua attempted a great thing for God, and he expected a great thing from God. Think about Gideon. Here was a man whose army got whittled down to 300. But he took his 300 men, Gideon's men, into battle with a torch, with a shout, and they conquered over the Midianites, who, as the scriptures say, were as thick as the locust. They attempted a great thing for God, and they expected a great thing from God. Think about the Apostle Paul for a moment. He said at the end of his life, I have fully preached the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum. He planted over 30 churches. He faced great opposition, but he attempted a great thing for God, and he expected a great thing from God. Now, a couple of caveats I want to say first off. We must be attempting great things for God, not for ourselves, but for God. If we do things for the wrong reason, God will bring it to ruin. That's why 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Grace has one purpose and one call and one reason, and that is to be, bring fame to the living Christ. We lift up him. And we must be attempting great things for God because God has called us. We are stepping out in obedience to faith, not impulsively according to the flesh. Now, the great lesson there is of Moses. Moses at one time tried to deliver his nation in the flesh. He slew the Egyptian, but it was not God's timetable or God's means. So God put him 40 years in the desert to reflect on what he did until it was God's time to deliver them. So let me summarize. Since we serve a great and mighty God, he has told us to expect from him to do great and mighty things, which we know not if we call upon him. Therefore, we should never shrink back from doing things to God's glory when God is leading us. We as a church here are trying to glorify God by creating environments where people's lives can be changed. That's why we will not shrink back from the task of proclaiming the gospel to the last and the least and to the lost. That's why we tried to get up to New York City last week. A team of us tried to get there. We were snowed out, but we made an attempt to go for God. That's why Dr. Goff tried to go down to Haiti recently, but his flight was canceled. That's why we're trying to establish a school over in Bangui, Central African Republic, the town of Ngumatu, where there are orphans on the street. And there is a church we are partnering with there that is clothing the orphans and feeding the orphans and educating the orphans and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the orphans. We're attempting to do something that seems impossible because God has been leading us. That's why our team went to Thailand, attempting to do something impossible for God, providing worship and support for the Asia team. Attempting to do something impossible for God is why we want this summer to go down to Ecuador and South Africa this fall. That's why we want this summer to have a vacation Bible school here at the church. We're attempting to do something great for God. It's been a number of years we've been on sabbatical 
since we've had Vacation Bible School, but God willing, we're bringing it back this summer, the week after school is out. Attempting to do something great for God is why we have lock-ins of the middle school and senior high kids here. We have 100, 150 kids who come. You see, we're fully committed to student-led, student-empowered ministries, coaching, mentoring, discipling this generation, that they can lead their own worship, they can serve their own community, they can testify to the greatness of God, they can begin to study the word and pray to have God speak to them. Attempting to do great things for God is why we partner with Kevin Mincy in, in southeast Washington. This part of Washington, D.C. has been called Murderer's Row because there are so many murders in this part of town. That's why we went down to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with the kids in southeast Washington. That's why we provided a Thanksgiving feast so people could come and be together. That's why we are attempting great things for God and having an Olympic night here on February the 27th. The world is focused now on Vancouver and the Winter Olympics, but just two weeks out, we're going to have a Winter Olympics here, and we think we have enough snow to pull it off. We believe that if we play together, we will stay together. We're going to do the biathlon. We're going to do hockey shots. We're going to do a wee ski jump. I mean, when's the last time you did bobsledding or curling? It's all going to happen here on the 27th, God willing. Attempting to do great things for God is why we showed the Passion film. We rented a theater, invited people to come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Attempting to do great things for God is why we added this addition onto the church, the Family Life Center. You see, at that time, our Mom's Day Out, our worship services, our youth and children's ministries were burgeoning and busting at the seams. So we stepped out in faith to build this building. God is calling us to do great things together. William Carey himself lived out his message. For 41 years of his life, he was a missionary to India. After he had been there for a while, the treasurer said, William, we have only 25 pence in the treasury. Carey said, no, we have 25 pence plus all the promises of God. We needed $36,000 at the end of last year to finish in the black. We were waiting for December 20th and 27th to come. So on the, on the 19th, we had a major snowstorm, you might remember. We tried to clear the lot, but we couldn't. The roads were unsafe. We had to cancel the service. Not only did we have to cancel the service, but we incurred a $2,300 charge for removing the snow. Now we found ourselves $38,000 in debt. So I received a phone call from a man who was calling every day saying, when will you pay? And I said, when God provides. That next Sunday, we gathered, and a $44,000 offering was taken. The next Sunday, $43,000 came in. $13,000 came through the mail. $5,000 came through the mail. Another $2,000 came through the mail. And by the first week in January, operationally, we had nothing in the folder. There was no debt to be paid. <laughs> God is faithful to his promise. God is faithful to his children. Attempt to do great things for God and expect great things from God. Now, what we're going to try to do 
over these next couple of years is retire the entire church debt. But an even greater thing we're going to ask God to do is eliminate debt in your life and mine. That we all might become debt-free. There's a scripture I want to share as we begin, Proverbs 22.7. The rich ruled over the poor, and the borrower is a, slen- is a servant, is a slave to the lender. Now, everything I want to teach you runs counter to the culture. This is entirely counter-cultural because our culture would teach you that going into debt is entirely necessary. If you want to start a business, our culture would teach you it's necessary to get a small business loan. If you want to expand your business, you need to get another small business loan. If you want to get to go to school, you get yourself a student loan. If you want to purchase a car, you get a car loan. If you want to buy furniture, you can buy furniture with no interest payments for the next 12 months. If you want to buy a widescreen TV, high definition, you can swipe across your credit card. You can purchase yourself a house and put nothing down and step yourself into a mortgage. The truth is that if you get a business loan, the borrower is a slave to the lender. And the bank can give you a business loan but they can also get into your business. You may say it's none of their business to get into my business. But the truth is, when you get a business loan, they are in your business because your business is their business. Secondly, the truth about student loans is this. They are like a bad cough that's hard to get rid of. They're like a relative that stays too long at the house. It took Debbie and I several years to dig out, if you will, from our student loans. The truth about cars is that the car in America depreciates 70% in the first four years. That is to say a $30,000 car in four years will be worth only $9,000. And the average car payment in America is $464. Instead of making payments of $464 a month, you can save that up for a year and put $5,000 on a used, reliable car. The truth about furniture with no interest payments is that after the grace period is over and you haven't paid for the furniture, the interest rate now is 24%. The truth about a widescreen TV is this, high definition. We have embraced as a culture not to replace something that is broken, but to upgrade to something better. You see, I have a cell phone, but now I want an iPhone. I have an iPod, but now I want a better iPod. I have a car, but I can sign for another car. You see, with one signature, with one swipe of my credit card, I can bury myself in debt. You see, think about the cross. On the cross, Jesus was stretched out. And he said from the cross to Telestai, which means the debt is paid. The debt is canceled. The obligations we have toward God have been paid in full. What you could not have done in a million years, God did in a moment by forgiving your sin. That tells me that God would have us live our lives free and not in bondage. We are not purchasing ourselves into freedom. 
we are purchasing ourselves, my brothers and sisters, into bondage. God does not want you to live your life in bondage. God wants you to live your life in freedom, experiencing his peace. God doesn't want you worrying about money. God doesn't want you fretting about a business loan. God doesn't want you sweating out a student loan. God doesn't want you regretting a car loan. God doesn't want you saddled under a consumer loan. Listen to me. God wants you to be free. We're beginning in a few weeks on our campus for the first time, Financial Peace University. 32 couples went with us the last journey through. And many of them are finding financial freedom. And we want you to go with us. It'll cost you $100, but it may be the best 100 bucks you've ever spent. And if you can't afford the 100, talk to me. We'll figure out something for you. You see, in America, we are buried in debt. In 2007, six billion credit card offers went out. Maybe a few went to your house. The revenue of the credit industry was $150 billion. You see, if you believe a lie long enough, you're told it convincingly enough, you begin to believe it. We're taught in America it is necessary to go into debt. I'm telling you, debt is dumb. In 1910, the Sears catalog said, buying on credit is folly. J.C. Penney, you know, when I was growing up, there's a J.C. Penney's not far from my house. You know what J.C. stood for? James Cash. You know what J.C. Penney did? J.C. Penney bought with cash. He hated debt. He expected his customers to pay in cash. Henry Ford, he hated debt. In fact, it was 10 years after his death before Ford Motor Company offered a credit. You see, if your grandmother and grandfather were here to talk to us, they would tell you, save up for a purchase. If your grandmother and grandfather were here, they would be saving up little by little to buy a clothes washer. You see, by putting a little bit of money away, and avoiding purchasing it to pay for it later, we avoid ourselves a lot of grief. You see, once we've paid for something, it's rusted out or it's lost somewhere in the basement, we don't even know where it is anymore. So what's happening in our country is we are not purchasing ourselves into freedom, we are purchasing ourselves into debt. So let me explain to you how this works, and maybe you already know this. You receive from a credit card company an application. They mail it to you. And they tell you that if you want to earn some air miles, the more you use your credit card, the more air miles you get. So you go out to eat and you charge it. You know, McDonald's has done a study on this, and they now offer credit. Formerly, before you paid on cash, the average meal at McDonald's was $4.82 per person. Now the average at McDonald's is $7.18 per person. What has happened? When you swipe the credit card, you say, let's upsize the uh, Coke, you know? Let's take the larger fries. Hey, throw in the uh, apple pie. So what's happening is, because credit is available to us, we're using this credit and we're burying ourselves in debt. So you go to the mall and you charge. And at the end of the month, the credit card company sends you a bill and a minimum payment. Now most of us are well-intentioned and would like to pay off that balance. 
but life happens and we do not keep up. Our consumer debt begins to pile up and to pile up and eventually we find ourselves buried under consumer debt. I want to take you to a verses that we are beginning to define our church by. Here's the vision of our church, Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 3, verses 1 to 3. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness to the prisoners. The good news to the homeless man in New York City is, you are not forgotten, you're not forsaken. Here's some gloves, here's a hat, here's a warm coat to wear, here's a warm place to spend the night. To the Haitian child, the good news is that you're not forsaken, you're not forsaken, you're not forgotten, that we are here for you. Here's some clean water to drink, some good food to eat, and shelter for the night. To the prisoner in the cell, the good news is you no longer have to live in guilt and shame. There is forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. To the orphans in Central African Republic, the good news is you have lost your mother and father, but we are your brothers and sisters, and we will stand with you. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon us, is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach this good news to the poor. You yourself may be going through financial difficulty and hardship. You yourself may be dealing with a layoff or a cutback. You may find yourself at home cutting back, not eating out as much, not going to restaurants. In fact, this week, we're trying to live on a budget. And so we were in the house together for three days, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And Debbie had made a big pot of vegetable beef soup. And so she served it up on Wednesday, the vegetable beet soup, and it was delicious. And she served it again on Thursday, the vegetable beet soup, and it was delicious. And Josh said on Friday, can we find any other food in this house besides the vegetable beet soup? <laughs> you see, you yourself may be dealing with less money to work with. But the good news is, and will always be good news, the good news of the glorious gospel is, your debt has been paid in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, you don't have to go around the world to preach this gospel, but that's why Dr. Goff wanted to take it to Haiti. And that's why we tried to get up to New York City. And that's why we want to go to Ecuador and South Africa. That's why I went to the Central African Republic. You know, when you dig out your neighbor, you're bringing some good news. When you open your hand to the poor, you're bringing some good news. When you bear the burden of the single mom, you're bringing some good news into her life. When you convey hope to a patient, you're bringing good news. When you bring enthusiasm to the workplace, you're bringing that good news. When you listen to the lonely, you're bringing that good news. When you help somebody who can't help themselves, you're bringing the good news of Jesus Christ. And the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon us because he has appointed us and anointed us to bring this good news to the poor. He has also called us to bind up the brokenhearted, to the wounded. You see, we can attend to the broken and we can mend the broken. And when hearts get broken, we tend to numb by spending too much. 
person was just telling me about going through a divorce and rushing out to buy themselves a necklace of pearls. We numb by watching stuff on television. We numb by eating excessively, trying to comfort ourselves. We numb by drinking excessively. The young numb by cutting themselves, letting the pain on the inside out. We numb by staying busy, running from one thing to the next. We have to let ourselves acknowledge our own brokenness. You see, in my own family, brokenness was passed down to me from my parents to myself. In the area of finances, my father served for many years in the United States Navy. But upon his release from the Navy, he lapsed into alcoholism and some very bad spending habits. So when I went off to college, I was living away from home, my father passed away. But I learned that my own family had been saddled with debt. My mother had a mortgage she could not pay, and there was consumer debt on a couple of cars. So when hearing this from my own mom, I left where I was staying in college and came home to help with the bills. You see, the brokenness of my father was passed down to me, such that when I got married to Debbie, we entered into a mortgage shortly thereafter, and bought for ourselves a couple of new cars. It took us a few years to resolve. I didn't know then that you could save up for a car, that you didn't have to enter into a car payment, but for several years we were saddled under the debt of those cars. What I'm saying is that the brokenness of my own father was passed down to me. Bad habits get passed from one generation to the next. And if this generation will become free, we can pass on some good habits to our children, you see. We are the transitional generation between brokenness and wholeness. And God himself can heal the broken heart. My son Chris, when he was only about three years old, was coming from the garage into the house, and he got his finger jammed in the door. And his hand became very hurtful, and he began to cry. But he held his thumb close to his chest. And I said, Chris, let me see your hand because I want to see it. And he continued to hold it close to his heart. I said, Chris, let me see your hand. And he wouldn't show me his hand. I said, son, how come you're not showing me your hand? He said, because I'm holding it close to my heart, and Jesus can hold that which is held close to his heart. At three years old, he knew that Jesus could mend the broken heart. All of our strategies to heal ourselves will not work. But Jesus can mend the broken heart. If your house has become broken because of debt, Jesus can repair that household. He came to proclaim freedom to the captives. Jesus has become to proclaim freedom to us who are in slavery. To people behind bars, he proclaims freedom. To the woman trying to please everybody, he proclaims freedom. To the politician trying to get reelected, he proclaims freedom. To the person controlled by their fear, he proclaims freedom. To the person driven by their ambition, he proclaims freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has come to set us free. The spirit of the living God is upon us, and he has anointed us to preach this good news, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to set 
the captives free, to announce to the prisoners that there is freedom. I was watching last night on the Olympics, Apollo Ono. He, is, he was to compete in the 1500 meter speed skate. He was, when I was watching, he was in the quarterfinals and semifinals. He was hoping to pass Bonnie Blair in the um, Vancouver, Vancouver Winter Olympics and become the most decorated American athlete in the Winter Games. He um, had earned previously five medals, and last night he was trying to enter into history. He had earned three medals in the 2006 Olympics in Torino, but he'd taken a break from speed skating. And you know what he did? He became a dancer on Dancing with the Stars in 2007. And people would say to him, you're Apollo Ono. You're the dancer. I think it kind of wounded his soul. He'd say, haven't you seen the Olympics? And he said by his own words, I became famous and wealthy, but I was empty. Here was a man who had achieved the highest honor in speed skating, who had earned for himself fame and wealth, but his own testimony was, I was empty. And so what he decided to do was to go back into training. For four sessions, two hours a day, Apollo Ono has been training. And last night, he made history by becoming the first American athlete to have six medals in the Olympic Games. But I tell you, if you were talking to him today, he would say, I am still empty. No matter what this world will give you, no matter how much wealth you will achieve, no matter how much fame can be yours, these things will never satisfy the yearnings of the soul. For we were made for a relationship with the living God. And the living God would grant freedom to us and peace. We will never find this peace by our own achievements, by our own efforts. This peace is only received to us by a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why he said, I have come to set the captives free. Now one last verse, and we'll finish for this morning. It comes from the life of David. Out of the book of First Chronicles. David was a man of God. He was perhaps the greatest king in all the history of Israel. And so David was living in a lovely cedar house. And he noticed that the, tent of God, the ark of God was in a tent. And he said, is it right for me to live in this lovely cedar house and for the, tent of God, the ark of God to live inside this tent? I will build a house for God. So in David's heart was a desire to do something great for God. And God said to him, David, you will not build for me a house, but I will build your house. It was told to David that his son Solomon would build the house for God. But what David did then in 1 Chronicles 29 was he took the national treasury. He took the national treasure and he put it toward the house of God. And he took his own personal treasure and he laid it down and gave it toward the house of God. And the people saw the sacrifice of their king, and they laid down their own personal treasures. And then David prayed this prayer. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance. You know, when I think about the snow, I think about abundance. 
Three trillion pounds of snow has fallen on Frederick. That's one quarter of our national debt. As for all this abundance, we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name. You see, in David's heart was not for himself to build himself his own house. In his heart was to build a house of God. He said, from all this abundance, from the national treasury, from my treasury, from the people's giving, we have built for you, God, a house. And it comes from your hand. And all of it belongs to you. You have to understand that God opens his hands to you and gives to you. And we receive from the hand of God. That's why God says don't close your fist toward the poor. Open your hand also to them. For it all comes from the hand of God. And I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. Your wealth, the wealth that God gives to you, is always a test of your own integrity. And all these things, he said, I have given with honest intent. And I have seen with joy how willing your people here have given to you. Now look at verse 18. O Lord God of our fathers, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever. What David was praying about was that this very desire to give would be in God's people's hearts forever. He was praying for you and for me that we would be willing when God directed us to give and keep their hearts loyal to you. Could this moment have happened in history if the nation were in debt? The answer is no. Could David have been this generous if he had found himself in debt? The answer is no. Would the leaders and people of the nation rejoiced if they had been in debt? The answer is no. You see, I believe that God is doing a major correction in our nation. He's doing a major correction in our families. He's doing a major correction in our own lives. We're discovering that the very same cost of a Starbucks coffee can buy a gallon of milk, right? Or two gallons of gasoline can be bought for a Starbucks coffee. And what God is doing is he's bringing correction about in the lives of his people. And one of the great things that God is doing here in our midst is God is building some strong and some healthy marriages in the midst of a terrible economic crisis. And so we went off on this retreat talking about 35 couples. And there the Spirit revealed to me that Debbie and I are living in the same house but not in the same room. So God gave to us a snowstorm to <laughs> spend some time in the same house together. And you know what? The prayer of my heart was that we could reconnect, and we had a snowstorm to do it. And we have a lot of testimonies of people whose lives are being changed through what happened at the marriage retreat. And coming to testify now is two of them, the Scots. So let's come on up and share what God was saying to them while they were away on retreat. And just as they come, I'd invite you all, the couples who are here, to consider next year being part of this experience. It is an amazing experience of community, of God's Spirit speaking to us, healing us, encouraging us. So here they are. Hello. Unaccustomed to public speaking as I am, I'm going to keep this to 90 minutes. 
<laughs> I'm Tom, and this is my wife, Barbara, and we're the Scots, and we live in Walkersville, Maryland, and we've been married for 26 and a half years. October 8th, 1983. Praise the Lord. I want to tell you a little bit about that journey real briefly is, like I said, we've been married many years. Um, I probably would be viewed as a saint. I took my bride to Germany for a three-year honeymoon right after marrying her at 19 years old. I was 20 and she was 19. And the United States Army financed that first honeymoon. Through the years of our marriage, um, we endured over 12 years in Europe away from family, friends, support system. And 10 of those years uh, of our marriage, the first 10 were without God. So we were pretty selfish and self-absorbed um, and things like that. In addition, we went through the oblivious um, state of not knowing how good marriage can be and finances, um, arguing, children, all the, the things that happen in marriages that are just those ups and downs. Um, separation, I remember, um, see this is the wisdom of the United States military. They'll send you to a foreign country with your family and then send the soldier to another foreign country and leave your spouse in that foreign country. We've done that numerous times. Praise the Lord, because the Lord was with us during those times. Um, so we went through a lot. Um, I made choices for the family that were selfish in nature um, for the betterment of my career that will help them. So how dare it be a bad thing? But it was. So the Lord struck my heart about the 17th year of service and said, you're going to focus on the family. And so uh, I chose to retire three years out. I prepared three years out, and I did in 2001. So we've been through a lot, um, and I even promised my bride that I would buy her her dream home, and we did. We moved to Reading, Pennsylvania, and I selfishly, without the Lord's advice, moved her from her dream home in Reading, Pennsylvania to the metropolitan Washington, D.C. area. So you see... A lot of our journey, I, I want to paint a picture of, of this, is that we are imperfect. We're just two people struggling through life. And the one thing we did have in common is we know we need the Lord in our marriage. So that's who we are. And so as we were thinking about, well, what would we say, we went back and forth. We had three days in the snow, too. Um, vegetable soup from the neighbors. Um, and so we just asked ourselves a couple questions, and so here's what we came up with. Is, so when we first heard about the retreat, kind of what went through our minds? Well, I think when, um, when I first heard about it, I thought, okay, we've been married a long time, but we could probably use a little refresher course. Um, we've worked through a lot of things, but everybody needs a little help, so I thought, okay, this would probably be good, and we can meet some new people, but we're probably just, I don't know, maybe there's just a little something out there we can learn. What went through my mind was I struck the word re and just said treat and focused in on that and thought, well, you know, all these years we've been through all these ups and downs. I got it figured out. But when I reflected upon it, I thought, wow, 
I just lost my father, who I just learned who he was in the last 18 months after 46 years of life, and uh, he passed away. And that's another testimony, but praise the Lord, it was the most God-moving event in my life. But I thought, I really needed a retreat for all the wrong reasons. It wasn't about my marriage, because my marriage was perfect, just asked me. And so, with that, I'm educated now. Um, so with that, we then went off to Rocky Gap. What a beautiful place. Um, and if, if you've ever been to Germany, it reminds me a lot of the Bavarian Alps. Beautiful place. Um, so the next thing Barbara and I were talking about last night is, well, what's one of those big things that impacted you most about the retreat? I think the thing that um, I noticed most was we all, we all make an effort to come here on Sunday morning. We put on our little happy face and we try to put all the distractions outside and we come and sit in here for an hour and we try to focus on God. Sometimes we can do it for an hour, sometimes we can't. I know some of you are sitting there thinking, okay, what am I gonna make for lunch when we get home? What do I have to do this afternoon? But this is our attempt in our whole week to really, really focus on God. And then there are other times when we try to focus on our marriage. If you have small children, you might try to arrange a date night. You might have some friends take care of your kids. Or if you can't do that, you try to get maybe half an hour in your week just to sit down and really talk about things and try to put the distractions aside. But while we were on the retreat, I recognized that really the most important thing we need to do for our marriages is to overlap them and to focus on each other, but invite God into that time too. That's exactly what we did for the whole weekend, but I'm not so sure that we're all really doing that during the week. I know that we aren't. I mean, there are times when we try to do that where we intentionally sit and say, okay, let's really have a serious conversation and let's pray about it, but, but we don't do that on a regular basis. And so it seems like such a simple thing, but. That's really what I recognized. We, can't, we surely can't only do that once a year, but I think that's something I walked away with that I know we need to really, really do. We need to invite God in to our time as a couple. And to dovetail on that is, is to, um, the thing that struck me like a lightning bolt is some strongholds I have in my life. You see, I, I too have a, come from a very dysfunctional family. And to realize that I invited those strongholds in my marriage versus God. You see, there are three in a marriage. And strongholds aren't one of them. It's God. It's Barbara, Tom, and God. And so that was a really lightning bolt because, you know, when we were going on that exercise, I thought, yeah, stronghold, stronghold, lift some weights, go move on. But the reality was, it, it really was a reminder that God is in control. So that's what the first thing that struck me. And so, and we thought, well, there was many more. So what else would you say about the retreat that really struck you? Well, when we were on this retreat, as Pastor R said, there were over 35 couples. We had newlyweds there, and we had oldieweds there. We had people who had been married a very, very long time. And although 
We're all celebrating different things in our lives, different milestones, and we all have different struggles about different things. Some it may be finances, some it may be jobs. Depending on where you are, all those reasons are different, but the celebrations and struggles are all the same. They impact your marriage the same way. Um, they cause discord in our families, they break down communication, and um, it's just the same, whether you've been married six months or 35 years. So that's one thing I recognized is that just because we've been married a long time, we're, we're no different than you if you've been married just a couple of years. I do have similar thoughts about that because I, I remember at one point just looking around the room and just seeing the young couples in struggle, the, the even younger couples married six months who were still on that honeymoon state, you know, the euphoria, you know what I mean? And the reality is, is that 23rd Psalm is my favorite chapter. It just, it, it just awesome. It just calms me. It gives me peace. Go by still waters, rest. And what it reminded me of the retreat was, as I looked around that room, I saw my first couple of years of marriage. I saw my six months. I then saw the Rainies over there at their 41-year point and thought, God is going to grace me and bless our marriage because I see how great it can be. So I looked across that whole continuum, and, you know, every once in a while when you're still enough, you can see God at work. And it was awesome for me. So what would you say in closing then, your last thoughts about the... Well, I think what we really would like to say to you is that, um, first of all, I want to take this opportunity just to recognize the leadership and the... Um, our pastors and everybody who put together that retreat. If you were there, you know how much effort went into that. So I'd just like to thank them. And finally, um, there's just so much importance in going together on a gathering like this um, within our church. It helps build community. Some of you I met for the first time. Some of you I got to know a little bit better. Um, but it's really important that when I come in here on Sunday, I think we need to know things about each other. I need to know that you're getting ready to celebrate some kind of milestone, or I need to know that you're struggling. And so when I ask you how you are and you just smile and say, I'm fine, that you really don't mean it. And I need to know that you're funny. You guys are really funny. And we just all need to know that about each other. That's what community is about in church and um, we need to keep our marriages together. It's really important for the foundation we want to build for our kids. So I would say um, just a commercial for marriage retreat, sign up and go. And if you can't do that, just invite God into your marriage. As you can see, I needed a retreat. Praise the Lord. Um, and I look at Ephesians chapter 5 very differently now. Yes, my favorite part was the Barbara honor me piece. But the most beautiful part is all of it together. And that if I honor her like the church, I'm honoring God. And marriage is by design of God for us to enjoy.
and I say this, and I really mean this. I still feel like I'm on my honeymoon. I do. There's times where I let you down, and there's times where I lift you up, and there's times where you drag me. (laughs) But this is what I would say to the Lord if the Lord took me today. Lord, I wasn't done loving you. I felt like I was in their living room. That was wonderful. They were sharing their hearts and experience. Um, how many would say today there's a stronghold in your life? How many, <laughs> how many would say that a financial, there's a stronghold also, perhaps passed down to you? But there is definitely a battle going on financially in our household. How many would say that you believe that you can dig out of debt? Now, I know you can dig out of snow, but how many would believe that you can become debt-free. Okay. If you don't believe it, it probably is never going to happen. Okay. <laughs> what you have to do is you have to quiet the voice of unbelief. And you have to hear the voice of Father God that he has plans for your life and those, la- those plans are good. And what we're going to try to do in the next couple of weeks is talk about this pathway toward freedom. So let me close with prayer. Can I? Father in heaven, In this room are people, just like Barb and Tom, who struggle with everyday life. We have things that happen unexpectedly, like the army sends us off to another location, or a bill that comes in that we didn't plan for, like a car repair. And we find ourselves, Lord, grappling with what shall we do. Father, would you take us from a position of captivity to a position of freedom? Would you fulfill the scriptures which say that Jesus came to set the captives free? He came to preach good news to those who are poor. God, would you do a work of your spirit in our church, whereby both the church has eliminated her debt, but we in our households have, lived, have learned to live without debt. And that burden that is upon our backs may be released we might find freedom and peace. And for those of us, Lord, who are trying to find this pathway, help us, Lord, to consider the Financial Peace University and signing up even this morning to be willing to say, Lord, take me on a journey with you because I really want to find out what this freedom is all about. Show me how to live debt-free. Deliver me, God, from my debt. For this is our prayer we pray together in the name of Jesus. Thank you.